It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. Time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. Welcome to The Big Rethink. I'm your host, Barry Ross, and today's episode is on doctors and technology, specifically ICU physicians and nurses and how they use technology within intensive care units to solve critical needs across various departments. Our guest, Anya Garlitsky, cardiac electrophysiologist and co-director of the New England Cardiac Arrhythmia Center at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Anya, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Barry. It's always a pleasure to see you, whether in person or virtual. I just want to point something out, Anya, that I did not flub that intro. Those are a lot of big words. That sure was fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So I know we have a lot to talk about, uh, you know, some uh, big picture questions, get some to discuss some use cases. But if it's okay with you, let's talk some high level. So in your opinion, how has technology changed the work of doctors over the last few years? It's incredible. Technology has invaded every aspect of our care in every specialty. It's changed our work, our workflow how we interact with patients. So it's everywhere and there's no getting around it at this point. And that's a good thing. And so, so it seems like though, based on your experience, um, what has been some of the biggest technology innovations that you've experienced in the last six months in the ICU? So the last six months, really the last three months have been incredible. Our world has changed in many ways. Uh, the most obvious one being the COVID pandemic. And it actually fast forwarded our use of technology. I don't know if everybody expected that, but whether we want to or not, we as physicians, as patients, as hospital systems have had to embrace the technology. And it's interesting because that technology was there. It's just that there were barriers, you know, some of them cultural uh, and some of them reimbursement issues, logistical issues. And we've just had to say, look, we need to use this technology and we've made it happen as a community. So telehealth and telemedicine has been one of the biggest changes right now in the ICU, as well as for outpatient and other types of inpatient medicine. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and I know we said that, you know, telemedicine was a big part of what we normally do usually, but maybe now it's more just based on what you're saying in terms of a cultural change. So how are you using telemedicine now? How's Tufts using telemedicine now? It seems like there's a difference. Yes, so we're using it both in the inpatient setting and in the outpatient setting. So during this pandemic, when we've really tried to minimize interaction unless absolutely necessary, uh, we've had visits through different types of platforms. They've been sometimes by phone for patients that don't have the technology accessible, but otherwise via audiovisual platforms. And I think the patients really like it. You know, it's it's really great, right? You can talk to me from your kitchen. 
know, once in a while on vacation making a sandwich, you know, during the visit. So it, it's, it's been entertaining. It's been interesting because you really get insight into people's lives. You've made it logistically easier for them to see a physician and get an opinion. And there is quite a bit that you can gain from that interaction, even if you can't do all testing right away. And I think there's also the notion, of course, of safety. I mean, you're not there in person. You don't have to worry about these other things that you'd normally have to worry about, I guess, in person. And that's a concern, obviously, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And other forms of technology uh, now have also helped us uh, treat patients alongside telehealth. So, for example, I'm, as you pointed out correctly, a cardiac electrophysiologist. So, in other words, I'm the electrician of the heart, not the plumber, the electrician, <laughs> just, to, just to point out that fact. <laughs> right. So what I deal with are abnormal rhythms. And what we as physicians really need to make a proper diagnosis is documentation of the person's rhythm when they're having symptoms. So of course you can't get that necessarily during an audiovisual visit. But there are other tools. So there are really cool new devices now, such as bio patches. They're big stickers with a chip in them that we send to patients. And they place it, for example, on their chest. And we have a way to monitor them at home in real time and then get that information so that we can make a diagnosis. So these other technological tools alongside telehealth, such as bio patches, have been really helpful. Uh, and other patients who want to feel even more empowered and a part of their own health and decision-making have downloaded on their own new apps. And there are new devices, uh, not all of them uh, yet covered by insurance companies, but some of them have come down in price. And these tools are wearable tools, wearable devices that patients can then sync with their apps. And it's really cool, you know, a patient can say, look, I had palpitations yesterday, I was on the treadmill. And rather than me saying, I'll send you a monitor if it happens again in a month, you know, call me, hopefully we'll catch it. Instead, that patient can be wearing this device, they download the abnormal rhythm of the app and email it. So it's really wow. incredible. Yeah, they're participating in their own health. And I'm getting the That's documentation, incredible. yeah, that I need in order to make a diagnosis and then proceed with the next step. So really cool stuff out there that people, because of this crisis, have adapted much more quickly than I think we normally would have. Yeah, I think that's great. And it's because, at least on my side of what I do, Historically, in wireless and technology, we've been talking about this notion of connected devices for many, many years. And, yeah. you know, we all think we could read the tea leaves about what industry is going to benefit the most. So, you know, believe it or not, I actually did some reading up on. Uh, Good know, job. I know. It's, I'm a little shocked. You did uh, your homework, Barry. Wonderful. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, yeah. So is my, my wife's also impressed, uh, but we won't a talk plus about that. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I got an A plus. Um, and so one of those use cases is, and I'm going to get specific, but we can also talk more about what you've seen is this notion of, you know, there's all these uh, 
equipments uh, in ICUs, like these pumps, these pulse rate monitors that can sound alarms. And sometimes all these alarms go off uh, at once. Uh, and that can produce this situation called, I guess, alarm fatigue for doctors like you and nurses. And so the theory is, if that if these smart devices can communicate with each other, other and essentially share patient data, that they could reduce the likelihood of you know, these alarms that are essentially duplicative or deal with fewer machines setting off uh, these false alarms. And so that doctors and nurses can spend more time with patients. So do you believe first, and this is very, I know very specific, uh, that these connected devices can impact something like uh, alarm fatigue? I do. So alarm fatigue, as you now know, that phrase is a coined phrase, is a true entity. You know, you walk into one of our units, whether it's an ICU or a cardiac telemetry unit, and you hear a ding, 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 ding. You hear all these sounds at all different frequencies all the time. And truth be told, the burden falls much more on our techs and nurses, even more so than our physicians, because they're often the ones sitting right there dealing with these alarms. So the alarm is there for a particular purpose, right? We need them. We want to know when a patient is having an abnormal rhythm. We want to know when a patient is desaturating, but we also don't want to hear artifacts. So if a patient is running in place or brushing their teeth and the signal changes and the device sees it as a fast heart rhythm, the alarm will go off, even though it's not a true event. And then it's up to us mere mortals to decide whether or not it is a true cardiac or pulmonary event and to turn off that alarm. So I think until AI, artificial intelligence, comes into play, which is you know, a, a whole separate conversation, until that happens, we as humans need to respond to these alarms. And I think it can go either way. This alarm fatigue means it's like a snooze button. It's like an alarm in the morning. You know, you, you hit it 20 times and you, you become numb to it. That's the concept. So you want to alarm when there's a true positive, when there's a real event, uh, instead of just being numb to those sounds. So I think anything that allows one to have less of those alarms and then for them to be true events will improve the workplace. Uh, you know, some companies have designed different types of alarms. So that's good and bad, but it just adds to the alarm. So for example, a couple years ago, I'm walking on to the unit and I hear this alarm. I thought it was like a three alarm fire. I was ready to call 911. You know, I asked the nurses, I'm like, what is that? What's going off? It wasn't the typical alarms that we hear. It wasn't a code blue. It wasn't the typical telemetry alarm. And the nurses are like, oh, relax, it's okay. It's our new bed alarm. So this is an alarm that is meant to go off when a patient is getting out of bed to try to reduce falls. So if there are elderly patients you know, who are very frail, for a nurse to know that, oh, somebody needs to go help that patient. So the intention is good, but 
we had to do something about this alarm. It was insane. <laughs> I just walked in and like, shut it off. <laughs> so yes, so this whole entity is real. Uh, and I think much like many other software platforms in the hospital, the more interaction there is among them, the more connectivity, the better. Yeah, I think that's that, that's that's helpful uh, because on the technology side, we always like to know that that human interaction. There's value there. It's not just a business model, and right. you know, and it's it's also interesting to see that you have these companies that design, you know, these new experiences, and one of them is like these new alarms that can you know scare the bejesus even out of a doctor like what is going on so what is going on yeah, that's right and uh, so let's uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head you know we invest a lot of time and money in concepts like ai and process automation so hopefully that'll have an impact on what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and if not you can call me up a few months from now and we'll have another podcast that's right. Love another podcast, and uh, you can blame me for another uh, different-sounding alarm. But, exactly. So, so this is great. And so, you know, as we kind of go down the path of looking at, you know, the value of these connected devices, sometimes helpful, sometimes not. Um, what other examples are you coming across for sensors? I like the idea of that patch that you talked about initially in the beginning of the program. But are there other situations that you're seeing? One that jumps to mind, and I'm going to bore you for a second. Uh, it's another use case I boned up on, just letting you know, um, is that, uh, you know, I think certain clinicians uh, want to make certain tasks uh, more effective. And one of those is, I guess, nurses want to make sure that patients are adjusted to specific correct angles um, in their beds. Uh, so they don't develop certain conditions like pneumonia or certain things like that. And so this is the way these the beds are adjusted now. It's manually. But, you know, most Nurses, I think, with a sensor could probably do this, um, you know, either remote or they can rely on a sensor to alert them that if, you know, a bed's not adjusted correctly to prevent a condition, that would be more efficient. And this is, again, just, just kind of me boning up. But what do you think about that? Is that another use case? Is that logical to you? You know, so I think that has been in the works for some time. I, oh. my understanding uh, I don't know that it's caught on, you know, in practice yet, or if that's really in different stages of development. Uh, again, in my mind, what the alarm I'm most familiar with, or the type of sensor, is the one about patient's position moving in and out of bed. So it's a similar concept, right? It has to do with movement uh, and patient positioning. I think... Again, like any technology, you know, it's interesting to come up with that idea, to see how it will be implemented. And oftentimes, once it's implemented, is when we see how it works, whether it needs to be tweaked or not, you know, quite frankly. Right. You know, so uh, there are uh, different conditions uh, that... Uh, are important to monitor regarding patient positioning. And some of those are ulcers, uh, you know, changes in pressure for the patient in different positions. Uh, oh, wow. You and I move at night. Your wife may know that. You may not know that. But you move all night long. And that's important because that prevents us from getting pressure ulcers, for example. 
So there are different types of beds that are constructed, for example, with that in mind. So again, you know, I think any of this technology is useful and can be tweaked. And a lot of the proof is in the pudding. Is that the correct American saying? You know, <laughs> I'm very nice. I grew up speaking right. Polish. Right. So I'm not so good with American aphorisms. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are all interesting technologies. And again, I think once implemented is actually when we see whether they're practical and useful or how we can tweak them. Okay. And so I think, is there anything... And so we've talked, you know, about a number of topics. Is there anything that you're personally looking forward to in terms of, you know, a new technology that would make your life easier just based on what you do on a day-to-day basis? I mean, it doesn't even have to be something that's in the hospital. Maybe it's a consumer-oriented application or device. So I think that's really happening now. So what's interesting is a lot of the technologies that have been here already are now being used in part because of this COVID pandemic. So what's interesting is we're using currently technologies that are already available. It's just, it's the use of them that has changed. So I'm a big fan of patient empowerment and for them to be accessible and to have accessible to them these devices. So I think that's already in the works. It's happening, it's available. We have to make it cost effective for patients. That's one issue. Uh, some patients oh, sure. can buy these apps and download them, these chips or sensors. Uh, and for some, it's cost prohibitive. Not all of them are covered by insurance because they're marketed commercially right. to patients. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to is to have these types of devices actually reimbursed for them to become more cost-effective, for them to be available to more people. I think that's our future. Well, I think uh, from what we've seen, you know, I think technology does get cheaper over time, you know, knock on wood. Right. right? I think the more, you know, entrance you get into... The market. Exactly. Um, See, even I know about that. Well, that's because you just recently got your MBA. See, I keep up. I keep up. Dr. and MBA. I, I get works. it. It's in the works. Okay. Well, congratulations beforehand. Um, so, so of everything that we've talked, Anya, everything that we've discussed, what is one thing you'd want our listeners to remember this conversation about? I think technology is good. I think you shouldn't be scared of it. I think it's a tool, like any other tool. And I think with the proper... Uh, use of it, reimbursement of it, you know, it's something that we should embrace. It, we're not going to hit rewind. It's here. So whether it's a sensor, whether it's artificial intelligence, I think it's okay. I think we just have to learn how to use these tools, how to embrace them, how to make them effective, how to make them user-friendly. That's nice. really the key, both for physicians and for patients. Uh, but, you know, if my mom can use FaceTime, you know, then I think there is hope for us all. <laughs> and I think that's okay. I, uh, knowing your mom, I'm sure she's, she's probably crushing it on FaceTime. She's good. She's even, so, she's even entering. She's even participating in Zoom calls 
wow. for her community Rotary Club at this time. Wow. So I think we can all do it. We can all embrace technology. I think that's interesting. I know it's funny because I do see a lot of commercials now, uh, doctors, uh, hospitals using, you know, video chat more and more, which is impressive because yes. five years ago, you know, that wasn't something that was on the radar. Like Absolutely. Yeah. And so do you use Zoom a lot at work? Do you use a lot of video chat? We have done a lot of Zoom, FaceTime, whatever platform, you know, is available, not, you know, that's great. To those. And we've used it for teaching conferences. We've used it for committee meetings. Uh, and in some ways, again, there's pluses and minuses to everything, right? In some ways, it's actually made, for example, our educational conferences more accessible. Some of wow. our, fellow, our fellows, which are our doctors in training, some of them you know, are busy at 7 a.m. already with patients. They can't always find the time to come to every weekly meeting. But if it's recorded, they can download it later. So it's really actually made attendance higher. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, so, you're, so your hospital is no different than any other like private corporation where you could expect 50, 60 doctors on a, a call discussing I, things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it depends what the venue is. You know, if it's our teaching conference, it's fewer. But our uh, hospital administration has had town halls, you know, and then, you know, hundreds of physicians. Yeah. Of course, you know, there was the initial muting problem that I think everybody (laughs) had. (laughs) Right. I think everybody had to, again, as I mentioned, tweak the technology, you know, figure out what the background should be, figure out when to speak. Uh, when to mute and so forth, but we're learning and we're embracing it. I'm a big fan of the mute button. That's a technology <laughs> that still escapes me uh, for better or for worse. Yes. Well, we're not going to go into that. Okay. So, yeah. Well, okay. Um, look, I mean, this has been great. Uh, we actually nearing the end of our time. Um, so one last question outside of talking to me, what is one thing you absolutely love about your job? Well, that certainly is number one, the opportunity to have this conversation, no doubt. (laughs) But what I love about my job is that it's innovative. It's always changing. We didn't talk so much about what I actually do on a day-to-day basis as far as procedures go, which is I implant cardiac devices and I perform procedures that are called ablations. So we can literally go into into the heart with a catheter create a 3D model of the heart in real time, apply energy and short circuit these abnormal rhythms for potential cure for the patient. So technology is an intimate part of what we do on a day-to-day basis and what we embrace. Uh, And it's really interesting. It's really cool. It's really amazing what we can offer patients in this day and age. Uh, and I think it's fun. So, so let's go back to that for a second. I, so that, that example of that 3D imaging and using that type of technology, has that always been available to you since the start of your career? I mean, we're going back not too far, but uh, that, that's- Barry, are you dating me? Barry, are you carbon dating me right uh, now? I am not. That, 
<laughs> that is something that's going to have to get edited out. I am pretty sure. <laughs> Let's backpedal that one. So in the last so, three years of your career. So uh, since my training, uh, that technology has been available, but it's changed significantly. The detail the type of anatomic imaging that we can create. We can import ultrasound imaging in real time now. We can import CT or MRI imaging that was done beforehand. So we're getting better and better at creating these images. So these are structural images of the heart that we create. And everyone's different. Everyone's a little bit different. You know, so you really need to know every nook and cranny of each chamber of the heart when you are manipulating inside. So, Anya, let's talk about some of these other uh, pieces of technology that you use, and maybe it's more on your day-to-day -day work. Um, and so, when we talk about, like, 3D imaging, how do you use that? So, it's incredible. There are different ways to do it. One way is to do a CAT scan or MRI ahead of the procedure. And that picture can actually be uploaded and segmented. So we have each chamber of the heart visualized ahead of time for the procedure. So that gives us a roadmap. Or, or and or, it can also be done in real time, for example, using an ultrasound. So in real time, you can have an ultrasound in the body and create a structural shell, a 3D image of the heart. And that allows us to see where we're manipulating the catheter inside the heart itself. And that also helps keep patients safer because the tool we used to use, and we still use uh, somewhat, but far, far less now, is fluoroscopy. So that's good old-fashioned x-ray. So x-ray is really useful. It's the bread and butter of the imaging type of tool that we use, but it has its downsides, which is X-ray exposure in and of itself. So these CTs, these MRIs, these ultrasounds, the creation of 3D mapping in real time has helped us keep patients and doctors safer because it minimizes the use of X-ray. And it also gives us much more detailed imaging than we've ever had of the inside of the heart. And it's not just the structure itself, it's really incredible. We can superimpose the actual electrical activation. You kind of see waves. And we can see the actual circuit and know where to place the catheter in order to short circuit the abnormal rhythm. So it's, it's really amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. That's really incredible. And I guess also, I mean, just. Going back to that, though, every time like I, that you use this platform technology, whatever, I mean, there's training. There has to be a sizable amount of training for you as a doctor. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, it's many years in the making. And, you know, we don't do it alone. I don't pretend to be an engineer. You know, I understand <laughs> oh, the concepts. <laughs> I understand the concepts, but I'm not the one creating the technology, nor even in the case Am I the only one using it? You know, we really rely on our colleagues from these companies. We often have representatives who help us because as you're manipulating, you can't be doing everything. So you have other people in a control room outside the procedure room who are 
helping manipulate this image and helping to create it. And I can then interact with, you know, that individual and say, you know, I'd like a different view. Uh, can you please tag something you know, further to the left, to the right? So it's really a team effort. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of training uh, to help make these procedures be safe and successful. And, you know, I'll be honest, again, I'm not an engineer, I'm not, you know, an innovator in that sense, per se. But initially, I thought, virtual reality in EP, what I do, how would you use it? But again, I have friends who are innovating in that field. And to think that it can be used with our 3D maps is really cool, to think that it can be part of our daily procedure Even, I didn't expect that, but I think that's in our future. It's not just a video game. I think you just hit the nail on the head. That's right. But it can appear to be a video game. And I think that's, a lot of people don't like to talk about how maybe a consumer technology may have impacted certain industries. And I think, as an example, AR is a perfect you know, use case for that. And I like the fact that, you know, we've been talking about what you like about your job, but you're able to use these different technologies to make your life, your work, your colleagues work a lot easier. And of course, the most important thing, save lives. Anya, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. You have a standing invitation anytime you want. Thank you. Barry, it was a pleasure to join you. And I'm just really glad that I can share my experiences with others. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's it for us on another episode of The Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross.